6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. Now you wonder, Boaz is quite a gutsy guy taking a Gentile bride in Israel. Despite the fact that Ruth's conduct won the respect of everybody, she still was a Gentile. How could Boaz feel so comfortable taking a Gentile bride? Very easy. His mother was Rahab the harlot. Didn't know that, huh? You got to do your homework. When Joshua conquered Jericho, remember Rahab? She married Solomon, and they had an offspring. Okay, the offspring was Boaz. Boaz and Ruth then live on Naomi's property, right? Raising sheep. Shepherd's fields, just outside of Bethlehem. What do you think happens there one night? Yes, you got it, right. When you hear the story about the shepherds on the night of Christmas Eve, uh, as we uh, celebrate it, um, whose fields are they talking about? The, the fields that belong to Boaz and Ruth, very likely. And uh, so it's an interesting story. And there's much, much, much here in the book of Ruth. But the main thing I want... What's interesting about this purchase is this demonstrate the, it demonstrates the kinsman, the act of redeeming the land, okay? Now, with this background, the peculiar transaction that occurs in Jeremiah will be less peculiar to you. It's more fun to show you Jeremiah and you wonder, what on earth's going on, then take you back here. But I thought it might be more constructive rather than play games with you, is just take you through. And I, I'm really proud of myself because I've never gotten into Ruth 4 and Ada again in less than half an hour. So we've, we, there's so much here that I'm, you, you, you would, if, if you realized how much was here, you'd be impressed with my resolve, leaving it there and coming back to Jeremiah. Now, if that remark, you wonder what on earth I'm talking about, get the tapes on Ruth. You'll, you'll love it. If I'm at a weekend conference or around a campfire on the beach or whatever, my favorite place to sort of just share with the group is to, just go through the book of Ruth. There's so much there, personally, maritally, spiritually, mystically. There's so much. It's, it's fun, fun. One of the most fun books in the Bible. But getting back to Jeremiah 32, let's jump in. Now, what, to get the context here, it's also important to recognize the peculiar position Jeremiah's in when, when it unravels here. Jeremiah now is in prison. Uh, Zedekiah's had a belly full of this guy. He's been preaching around. Uh, uh, he... he uh, uh, treasonously. Jeremiah's been telling them, look guys, don't fight the Babylonians. They are raised up by God to be his instruments to punish you. They're going to win. Very unpopular message. Treasonous, in fact. Zedekiah himself is really, isn't that upset with Jeremiah, but his first string, his advisors, his, his, his next in command are really out to get him. And uh, Zedekiah, if anything, is a very weak guy. But we covered all that before. But now, what's important here is to recognize that the siege is on. The siege is on. The Babylonians are out there. Okay? They're, the siege is on. You know, this is, it's, it's a strange time to be buying real estate. You know, we're, especially for Jeremiah, who knows they're going to be cap uh, taken captive and the city's going to be leveled. 
the entire country is going to be in shambles and under the heel of a conquering world empire. So that's a context in which Jeremiah is going to go buy some property. Strange. Why? Jeremiah 32, verse 1, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, that was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And only Kedrezer and Knezer confuse you. It's the same guy. Nebuchadnezzar is actually the proper pronunciation, but so many of us are used to the classical Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to try to, you know, correct myself. It's sort of like Jehovah. I'm not going to fight that battle. We'll just stay with what we're comfortable with and recognize we're wrong. Um, for then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison which was in the king of Judah's house. Bear in mind, he is not in dungeon. Uh, that's where he was for a while, and I won't go through that whole background. There's a whole argument about uh, what Jeremiah was really doing, whether he was trying to defect and so forth. I don't want to get into all that. He was in a dungeon, but um, Zedekiah, in effect, uh, permits him a form of imprisonment that's more congenial. He, uh, he doesn't have him in the dungeon. He has him in the court of the prison, which was in the king of, in Zedekiah's house. In other words, there's a, it's a more privileged form of st still being in prison, but, but not, uh, not so oppressively. For Zedekiah the king of Judah had shut him up, saying, Why dost thou prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah the king of Judah shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. In other words, you know, eyeball to eyeball, navel to navel, they're going to be face to face, and okay. And he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord, though he fight with the Chaldeans, yet he shall not prosper. In other words, that's background as to why Jeremiah was imprisoned. Originally a dungeon, but here in this thing he's at the court of the prison, which is not quite so bad. Okay. Okay. Is that, and by the way, Jeremiah apparently is there until the actual fall. We, this will all come up again in chapters 37 and 38. We'll get into the actual events. Bear in mind that chapters in Jeremiah are not, not necessarily chronological. We're in the middle of a three-chapter chunk called the Book of Consolation, a particular set of messages. So um, we're going to deal with the exact timetable time and so forth in chapters 37 and 38. Now, you recognize, though, that they're under siege. The city of Jerusalem's under siege. Now that means that the outlying properties, the miles around Jerusalem, are already conquered by whom? The invaders. Okay, the enemy. Now brings us down to verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, By my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. Bear in mind, Anathoth was Jeremiah's hometown, right? So I've forgotten the exact distance, some 10 miles away, I think. I've forgotten. I have to look back through my notes. Anyway, it's not far away. It's his hometown, and, and here he has a relative, the son of his uncle, is, coming, is going to come and suggest to him to buy his property. Now, this is... Um, this is sort of like um, the French trying to sell you a piece of land after the Germans had rolled their tanks over it. You know, I mean, it's 
you know, the, the, or, or trying to sell maybe some, you know, farmland that's two feet underwater or something. I mean, this is not exactly your best real estate proposition on the face of it. By the way, the Lord's telling Jeremiah that his, that Hanamel, his uncle, is going to come to him. Verse 7, it's a prediction. The Lord is saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, By my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. Verse 8, So Hanamel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, By my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine. And thy and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. And Jeremiah says, Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. See, the Lord predicted that he would do this. And lo and behold, this muggle's son shows up to, with his real estate proposition. Now, to really understand this a little bit, you have to visualize, you put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes. You're in prison. You know from the word of the Lord you've been preaching for almost 40 years that the Babylonians were going to conquer the land and take the entire nation into slavery. You knew that. And you knew the slavery was going to last 70 years. What good is owning some real estate? You know, that's kind of pathetic, isn't it? Okay. But the Lord wants Jeremiah to buy this property, right? So Jeremiah does. Verse 9. And, I, and Jeremiah says, And I bought the field of Hanamel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money even 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. So I took the deed of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. There are two copies of the deed. One copy of the deed is sealed. We don't know how many seals, but it's sealed. Put in an earthen jar, we'll see shortly. And another one is open. The open one is to be able to understand what the requirements were to break the seal. Okay, now this was all looking toward a day. Jeremiah knows he's not going to be able to take possession of the land. He's in, not only is he in prison now, but he knows the Babylonians are going to conquer He's going to go off into captivity for 70 years. He may or may not survive. It's very unlikely he's going to survive another 70 years. So Jeremiah doesn't expect to outlive the captivity. So what's going to happen to this piece of property? Jeremiah's descendants will have the location of where this jar is hidden, with the deed in it, sealed, and they'll have this open copy, which will explain where the land is and what requirements there would be to redeem it. And they will show up someday with evidence that they are the kinsmen, that they're able to perform, and they'll execute the requirements on the deed, break the seals, and possess that which was theirs by right. And I'm coming, I'll come more to that, but that's the idea. So... Jeremiah is here, and incidentally, this is the only account of a purchase of this kind in the Scripture. And the Holy Spirit has a very specific reason to go through this business here. And uh, I'll come to that, too, shortly. To get down to verse 12, And I gave the deed of the purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahaziah, 
in the sight of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that signed the deed of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. Baruch is Jeremiah's amanuensis, or secretary. He's the one actually doing all his writing. He's the one that wrote for Jeremiah. He was a scribe. And so he gives it to Baruch as a fiduciary or as a recorder, okay? The presence of the witnesses and so forth. Uh, before all the Jews that sat there in the court of the prison. Verse 13, And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this deed of purchase, which is sealed, and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. Now, when you put something in an earthen vessel, it turns out to be a pretty effective way to, to handle this stuff, because the elephantine in Egypt and the, the scrolls at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, have lasted some 2,000 years or more by being rolled up and put into a jar and put in a cave. So uh, the idea of, of saving you know, these kinds of records, is it's a pretty good archival system. Verse, verse 15, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now, the first thing to recognize, there's many, many lessons here, and we could, we could spend a lot of time trying to exhaust the different meanings here. First of all, it's an, it's an act of faith. Jeremiah may or may not have understood all that need. God told him to buy it, so he did it. His uncle comes with his suggestion. Now, we don't know the motives or background of, the, of, of I shouldn't say uncle, but the uncle's son. We don't know Hanamel's motives, but Hanamel... He's obviously got a distressed sale situation here. He's not going to find many people are going to be interested in buying his piece of property there in Anathoth because there's, you know, armies uh, uh, rolling chariots over it and so forth, and, and no Jew is going to be in any position to own anything. They're about to be taken slaves. And uh, Hanamel is no fool. He understands that. But he, he's going to try and race. He, he, I guess he figures he can separate uh, from his uh, relative here. He can get 17 shekels, which whatever shekel is, and there's no assurance of exactly what that is. By the way, one of the one of the by roads that I went on and it didn't yield a lot of fruit is why 17 shekels. If you know my crazy way of looking at the Bible, I always think that there's nothing by accident. I'm convinced the 17 shekels is there for a reason. I haven't found the reason yet. Okay, um, so the one one the one thing you can do, and I'll just show you this as a way of springboarding on your own when you've got some time on your hands, is take your Strong's Concordance and look up 17. And you'll find all the places appears in the scriptures. In Genesis 37, 2, that's how old Joseph was when he got his coat of many colors. Uh, also was how long Jacob was in Egypt. Jacob becomes, he's there 17 years in, in, in uh, Genesis 47 to 28. Uh, for, for a particular interval, he's obviously there longer than that. Uh, and, uh, and also in 1 Kings 14 and 2 Chronicles 12, we discover it's also how long Rehoboam ruled which is a, a troubled time before the, you know, the Civil War and all of that. And Jeho Je there's also some things in Israel that I don't think it pertained to this, like Kings 13. So uh, those are the only places, uh, some six places, counting this one, that uh, 17 occurs in the Old Testament. So what it means, if anything, I don't know. I haven't uh, probed any deeper than that, uh, so I can't come up with some great profound insight typologically, but I'll let you run with that if you find that sort of thing uh, intriguing. But the first thing they recognize is simply that Jeremiah was being faithful. God told him to buy the property, so he did. And so Jeremiah purchases the land for 17 shekels, arranges the deeds so that Jeremiah's heirs, some 
several generations later probably, will come back and pick up this piece of property in Panathoth, which their ancestor, Jeremiah, purchased for them. And they will take possession of it by going through the, through the, rigor, the, you know, the ritual of the kinsman redeemer's role by taking the, uh, the seal deed, and when they perform it, break, when, as they perform, they break the seals and claim the land. Now, we're going to see an interesting prayer, but before I get to the prayer, uh, let me tell you why I think this is so important. That's why we started with Leviticus 25 to get the basic legal perspective and to show another example of, of an account of this kind in Ruth chapter 4. Um, I'd like to take you now to Revelation. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation, and um, we'll pick it up. We're actually going to pick it up about chapter 5, but uh, the first, uh, first chapter is introductory, and the next two chapters are seven letters that Jesus sends to seven churches. Chapter 4, then, is where John apparently is transported into heaven, and he sees a vision of the throne of God. And he sees the throne, and round about the throne itself are 24 other thrones. And uh, there's some very exciting goings on. And there's uh, some adoration and, uh, and uh, uh, so on. And then we get to chapter 5, which is the place I want to focus on now. And the chapter 5 introduces an element that becomes a structural element for a major portion of the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, if you're a student of the Scripture and you're looking for a, um, a scroll with seals, you'll discover that that points you to title deeds. So that's the first hint here, and the, and the reference, of course, are Jeremiah 32 and Ruth 4 as examples, and Leviticus 25 and so on. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose, loose its seals? Now, apparently not anyone could come up and claim this scroll, whatever it is. Somebody had to be worthy to open the scroll by breaking the seals. It took some special requirements. And we get, the first, we get a couple of the hints. Verse 3, it says, No man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll, neither to look upon it. Now, that's a little bizarre. Verse 3 implies that the person had to be a kinsman of Adam. Had to be a man. Couldn't be an angel or a cherubim or something of that nature. Because he says, who is, open, who is worthy? He says, no man in heaven, nor on earth, neither under the earth. Interesting, there's three major divisions, apparently, where the search goes on. In heaven, in earth, neither under the earth. You have to excuse me that I have this geocentric notion of Hades and all that. I'm, I'm either awfully old-fashioned or something, but it's west was able to open the scroll, neither to look on it. Now, 
That's the generality. Fortunately, there's an exception we're about to encounter. But John, you and I, as we read this, we're a little puzzled. John, apparently, that's the person describing this, did understand what was going on. Because in verse 4, it says, I sobbed convulsively. I wept much in your King James. The Greek implies extremes. He sobbed convulsively. He was really broken up. John was shook because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look upon it. Strange, strange passage. Fortunately, verse 5, one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Seven seals. Seven is the, the number of completeness. The book was completely sealed. But fortunately, there is one who is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Those are titles of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. You bet. Those titles are introduced earlier in the book, and, and here there are 24 titles introduced in chapter 1, and they become the links throughout the rest of the book, identity links. And these, are, of course, are it, you know, titles of Jesus Christ from Genesis onwards. Lion of the tribe of Judah, from the root of David, sometimes called the root, sometimes the branch. We'll see Jeremiah uh, use that phrase a lot. Hath prevailed, that is overcome, to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And John says, And I, be, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, or as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. That's the sounds. The seven hordes and seven eyes is a bizarre kind of thing. You'll find some of the Renaissance pa pa painters try to paint this literally. That's, obs that's obscene. It's an idiom. It's a, uh, an idiom of the Old Testament. Seven horn was a classical symbol of authority. Seven horns was complete authority. Seven eyes was complete knowledge. And the seven spirits of God, which are sent forth in all the earth, they're listed in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. The seven spirits before God's throne. It's an Old Testament phrase for what in the New Testament would be called the Holy Spirit. These phrases, one of the things, the secrets to understanding the book of Revelation is to recognize its Jewishness. The book of Revelation was probably, some, uh, the, the, even though it's written in Greek, the thought patterns are Hebrew. There are even some scholars that believe it was originally written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek, John being fluent in both languages. But the thought patterns are Hebrew. The, the idioms are drawn from the Old Testament. So the more conversant you are with the Old Testament, the more comfortable the book of Revelation is to you. If it seems strange, it's because you're probably more familiar with the New Testament than the Old. The, the more, it draws heavily. 154 direct quotes from the Old Testament in the book. Now, and he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, verse 7. Okay. And then when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the four and twenty elders, fell down before the Lamb, and have every one of them harps and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Oh, this Lamb, first of all, 
The title was The Lion of the Tribe of Judah, but when John looks, he sees the Lamb. Now, he doesn't see a four-footed Lamb. He sees the Lamb of God as a title of Jesus Christ. In fact, the title by which he was introduced publicly by John the Baptist in the, in, in, when, he, when he first made his appearance. The Lamb of God. A, a Passover title, by the way. A Passover Lamb. But again, it's a title. Don't, don't confuse these Old Testament codes or cliches or idioms with a graphical drawing. They're it's, uh, it would be inappropriate. So these, uh, verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Thou hast made a, us unto our God a kingdom of priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And on it goes. And there's uh, continual adorations and uh, worship of the Lamb, and then what we have, of course, from chapter 6 through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation are these, uh, are, are a series of things. The seven seals are open, seven trumpets are blown, seven bowls of wrath are poured upon the earth. And the whole book of Revelation unfolds. But what's happening here is most scholars view this seven-sealed book as a title deed. And they, uh, for drawing from uh, both the way it operates in the book of Revelation and also from the stage that's been set in the Old Testament. It's a title deed not to the land of Israel, a title deed to the earth. Dominion was originally given to Adam, and Adam forfeited it by uh, yielding to Satan. So the planet Earth is under the jurisdiction of a usurper. The Bible speaks of the God of this world. Jesus Christ, the God of this world? Not the way Paul uses the phrase. God of this world is none other than Satan himself, the, a usurper. The kingdoms of this world, the nation of this world, its entertainment, its structures, its culture, belongs to whom? Satan. That's an uncomfortable feeling. Don't think that the, the domain of Satan is limited to the occult. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.